This is ADH-TV. I'm David Flint. And the program is Save the Nation, and uh, it's produced by Charlie Noble. My guest today is known to many viewers, very well known to many viewers, and uh, he's Rick Brown. He's a strategic and political advisor. He was, uh, from my point of view, the Victorian director of the ACM vote no case in 1999, where he turned out to be the top person in terms of giving good advice concerning strategy and tactics. Uh, and he also particularly invented what was the termed by the Republicans, the killer slogan, which had a very strong force in that campaign and that was vote no to the politicians' republic. Some of the uh, constitutional monarchists who, who were politicians objected to it, but it worked very well, vote no to the politicians' republic. And it was accurate, as all of our slogans were. It didn't misrepresent the case in the slightest because the model which the people voted on in 1999 would have significantly reduced the checks and balances on the politicians and in particular on the Prime Minister. So thank you very much for that, uh, Rick, and for also ensuring that uh, we won the, the state where we thought we might have the, the biggest chance of losing, and that was Victoria. So welcome again, Rick. Thanks, David. Now, Rick, uh, you've just had a an essay published by uh, Connor Courted also uh, in another place, have you not? Uh, that, this one was published in Connor Court and I wrote one last year, David, that was published by uh, the Institute of Public Affairs. All right, so this one is only published by Connor Court. And yes. uh, we have an arrangement here with Connor Court, so I'll request that uh, there be uh, a reference to Connor Court because people can acquire this through uh, the service that we provide. Yes. And uh, the name of this is From Rousseau to the World Economic Forum, is it not? Yes, yes. And, and then the, um, and, and the, ne and the next bit is woke, woke Capitalism and the Power of Ideas. Woke Capitalism and the Power of Ideas. And, and the Power of Ideas. Yes. And you, you say that uh, the, recent, the recent affair in which Nigel Farage was outrageously treated by NatWest and Coots Bank is a metaphor of, uh, oh, of the story it, that you're yes. telling. Yes. Uh, what, um, my, my, my proposition is that, uh, that the best way to understand uh, the the cultural forces uh, that are dominating culture today uh, is that uh, there has been an intersection of four unrelated but interconnected of in interconnected sort of events. Uh, the first starts with a fellow called Jean Jacques Rousseau. Uh, Jean Jacques Rousseau has been described by uh, Roger Scruton as the as the first and greatest of the liberal reformers who had an impact on modern culture and modern politics. Uh, 
Monsieur Rizzo, uh was the intellectual force behind the uh, the French Revolution, and his ideas were very influential in the American Revolution. The over the is at the heart of Jean-Jacques Rousseau's proposition uh, is that uh, well he says men are born free but everywhere are in chains and the chains he's talking about are external forces that endeavour to frame the way people behave so as far as he is concerned the family is a chain religion is a chain civilization itself is a chain uh, because his proposition is that at the point of birth we are perfect and that basically everything goes downhill from there. This, and if I could interrupt you, could, could, could I interrupt you on that and just say this yes. is absolutely contrary, is it not, to our Judeo-Christian religion? Oh, very much so. Oh, oh very much so, yes. Uh, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau is the inventor of what was called the noble savage. The, uh, and so, so fundamentally, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau is at odds not only with Christianity uh, and not only with other religions, uh, but basically any other field of thought. Uh, I mean, you can look at Africa um, with witch doctors or you can look at the Greeks, the Romans, uh, Muslim, Hindu, um, the one thing that they've all got in common uh, is essentially the idea that we are not perfect. If, if you look at them all, that I mean, if, because there wouldn't be a need for gods if we were all perfect. Is there a relationship, so, can the, I interrupt you, is there a relationship yes, between yes. Plato and Rousseau? Uh, well, there's a, the great argument, uh, David, as, as you know, that there has never been an original idea since Plato, Socrates, and, <laughs> and Aristotle. I, I do and like the, that. And, <laughs> and, well, I think it's large. I think I think there's great substance for that. And so the answer to your question is yes. Uh, it's, well, no, I want to say yes. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau was the first person to articulate this proposition and to back it with a theory. And, and that's why he's considered to be the, the, the creator of liberalism. It's not that it's not the, the, some of the ideas he held uh, weren't held by people who went before him, but he was the first to validate them, uh, the first to give them legitimacy. And the what is significant about him? There's a fellow called Philip Reef, who's an American sociologist, and uh, he points out that. The fundamental difference between Rousseau and everybody who came before him was that if you look, it doesn't matter whether you look at the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, or whether you look at Christianity, uh, Islam, uh, fundamentally they were all based around the notion of an external set of values, ideas, or whatever, which gave us all our identity. So Rufo was not a Christian, made the point that uh, you know, prior to the Reformation, fundamentally, uh, all Europeans were Catholic. That was their identity. Uh, it, it, it was inherited. Um, and if you look at the Greek gods and, and all the rest, again, values were inherited. But with 
Monsieur Rousseau, um, was the notion that we determine our own identity. And that was the radical element of, of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Yeah, yeah, we are what we want to be, basically. And the only thing that inhibits us from being what we want to be are these external forces, as I said, like religion, like society, people who are wanting to control how we behave. And, and, and uh, we, we've just been through a referendum. And yes. those who were on the yes side seem to have this, seem to apply Rousseau's attitude oh. to the Aboriginal people. Oh. That they are treated, they are contrasted with us because they are the, the noble people who come without sin, whereas we, we are born with sin. Well, you see, uh, if you follow, follow his proposition, uh, we are born perfect. The only perfect. The only perfect experience we have is our feelings. Everything after that is corrupted. All knowledge is corrupted. So the as so therefore, uh, your conscience ought to be driven by your feelings, and your morals ought to be driven by your conscience. Now, the moment I start talking like that, then, I mean, you can relate to a lot of what's going on around us. Uh, we live in a culture in in which the elites basically govern by feelings. Now, uh, this concept of feelings are are perfect has had huge consequences so you go from rousseau and you keep going uh, rousseau says uh we determine our own, own identity uh he says that the uh our identity is based on feelings uh, then you come to sigmund freud and he says our identity our, our identity comes through sex and he says that the basically that people can make decisions around their sex, but from about the age of eight. Now that sounds crazy, um, but if you want, if you think through, how do you justify sex education for kids who are three or four, for the sake of argument? If how do you how do you validate this idea that teenagers can change uh, what you would know, I would say, is change their sex without necessarily consulting their parents. Well, fundamentally, we start with, we start with Freud, who in turn, whose ideas basically are based on Rousseau. So then you come, keep going forward, and then you get to a fellow called Herbert Marcuse, uh, he was a communist. Uh, he was Frankfurt School, and Marcuse then basically took this a step further. He then said that uh, sexual freedom is simply an exp- expression of political freedom. So at that point, he politicised he politicized sex, and then you come to Simone de Beauvoir, who then essentially said. Um, people's sex is what they want it to be. Fundamentally, that's what she said. So so basically what she was saying was that uh, 
when, when we are born, uh, fundamentally, age sex is imposed on us. Uh, that we don't choose that sex, uh, and so the um, when you when you go from Simone de Beauvoir, uh, what what you end up is with where, where we are now. I mean, she, I mean, she said, "One is not one is not born, but rather becomes woman." So that it's really the power of uh, of the ideas, the effect of the ideas, which yes. should be concerning us. And you say, you say, do you not, that uh, the political parties are, are the articulators of ideas and don't really have a significant or major role to play in the cultural wars? Well, I, 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 I think they reflect the cultural wars rather than initiate them. Could I just uh, ask the, you... I, I mean, I think history... Yes. Mm. Could I just ask you on that? We've just been through a referendum... I think that the great majority yes. of people came to a common sense conclusion. They weren't thinking about it philosophically. They came to a common sense conclusion. They could smell a rat in the sense that they thought something was wrong. They didn't like it. They hadn't been persuaded and they therefore went, weren't going to accept it. I, I, I think that is true. And, and then you ask the question, David, why? You know, why is it that um, that for some people this was the most important uh, question in the universe, and for other people, the the the, the whole the whole thing just sounded sounded like a con. Um, and and my my view about that is that the inner sub the inner suburbs is philosophically liberal. That the outer suburbs and the regions are philosophically conservative. And that that, that, is, that is the real divide. And, and when, when you say uh, liberal, it's, the, you're not talking about it in Australian political terms. We use the term no. liberal for a party. You're talking about it in, yes, a, no. in a different way. No, aren't I, you? I, I'm talking about what I was talking about before, you know, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and, and, and all the rest of it. Uh, uh, at the heart of liberalism is the notion that the primary unit in society is, is the individual. And... And as I was saying, and not only is the primary unit the individual, uh, that that primary unit determines their own identity. Uh, whereas in the outer suburbs and the regions, uh, their lifestyles are built around conservative values. You know, they, in, the, um, in the outer suburbs and the regions, uh, the, the notion of family uh, still, uh, still has support. Uh, the notion of community still has support. Uh, if you look at religious adherence, uh, it is higher in the regions and in the outer suburbs than what it is in the inner suburbs. Uh, and so fundamentally, there's a conservative bent, if you like, that runs through the outer suburbs and the regions, whereas the inner suburbs, uh, it's completely different. And, when and I, think that's, I think that's the explanation for this referendum. Yes. Uh, uh, I think uh, it was the explanation for the No Republic referendum. If you look at the results of this referendum and you look at the results of the No Republic and you do an overlay of seats that voted yes and voted no, uh, they're fundamentally the same. 
And this hasn't been affected by the vast amount of immigration we've had over the years and the changes in education? Well, it, it's it's interesting. Um, the um, this uh, well, this referendum suggests that the answer to your question is no. It does, doesn't it? I mean, people. You're, you're seeing this much more in in the USA, um, uh, where there are all sorts of views about the uh, political consequence of uh, immigration. And in fact, the States is, is probably, um, the States probably uh, is a better, a better um, basis for sort of forming views about this. Uh, the view in the United States amongst the Democrats uh, has been that anybody who was not white European was a Democrat voter. And it didn't matter whether you were uh, South American, African American, Mexican or whatever, that by definition, anybody who was not white would, would be Democrat. And the uh, that has been the political assumption the Democrats have made uh, for years. Does that explain, uh, and, could I interrupt you, does that explain hmm the open borders policy of Biden, who's virtually thrown the borders open, does it also explain the extraordinary rate of immigration that uh, well, the Australian government has adopted? Hmm? There are people who hold that view. I mean, I don't know, but there are certainly people who hold the view uh, that the open border policy uh, was perceived by some to have a, a political benefit. But the, the, the interesting thing in the States is what they're now finding is that the, um, the what we will call uh, the, the Mexican vote or, or the equivalent uh, isn't going as much to the Democrats as had been thought. Uh, and if you look at Florida, for example, uh, there is no suggestion that Florida is going to go Democrat anytime soon. And whereas there were hopes that the that the uh, in, influx of migrants would change Texas from a Republican state to a Democrat state, uh, that uh, that may no longer be the case. Uh, in fact, last year, the New York Times published a an analysis conducted by two academics from the Brookings Institution. Uh, these two academics were the same two academics who did an analysis of Democrat policies uh, back in the 80s. And as a result of their recommendations, there were changes in the Democrat policy and that underpinned the election of President Clinton. And they made they put forward the proposition uh, that the Mexicans could be the modern equivalent of the Italians and that is Democrat to Republican in three generations. And they were making the point that amongst the, um, the Mexicans South and South Americans was a high level of religious adherence and that that religious adherence actually outweighed uh, 
their, their economic interests when it came to voting. One of the things that I so, find um, uh, one of the things I find surprising about the allegiance, for example, of the uh, Afro-Americans to the Democrat Party is the Democrat Party is the party firstly of slavery, and then the party of segregation. Yes. Why? Why would yes. uh, black people see the see the Democrat Party as their natural party rather than the Republican Party, which is the party of uh, of Abraham Lincoln? It it it, it, it you go back to this idea. It's it's very interesting. Um, uh, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, in the debates around the founding of America, uh, didn't trust the peasants. Well, what, what is clear, I think part of the explanation is this, David. Um, what, what, can I keep going? I'll answer the question in the long way around. Um, what, what I said in the essay was that there were four intersecting factors. Uh, the first was the ideas which the foundation of which was Rousseau, uh, which have been adapted by, in particular, uh, Sigmund Freud, Herbert Marcuse, and uh, Simone de Beauvoir. Uh, and so what we now have is Rousseau on steroids. Uh, but the second factor then was that these ideas were quite intentionally advocated and prosecuted, and they were prosecuted with the intention of creating a new elite. And the architect of that is Antonio Gramsci. And it's Antonio Gramsci's ideas that in the 1960s were sloganized with, with the term, the long march through the institutions. The institutions being the education system, media and the public service. Uh, then the, the third thing then that that occurred to me when I was writing the essay was uh, if the if Antonio Gramsci was targeting the elites, that then raised the question as, as to whether or not the elites have ever been committed to democracy. And uh, what the reason I'm conscious of that is that there's an American historian, Christopher Lash, who in the 1990s said that the uh, that a cultural analysis of the 60s was best understood as a campaign by the elites uh, to bypass the peasants, whom, as Lash said, the elites considered to be racist, xenophobic and all the rest of it. You know, Hillary Clinton's deplorables. Uh, and to get to the point where they didn't even engage with the masses at all, but they simply bypassed them. So that raises the question then as to whether or not the elites have ever supported democracy. Now, I think it's very hard to form a view about that based on European history, uh, because the evidence there would be overwhelmingly in favour of the proposition that the elites don't. Uh, so what I did was I then looked at uh, America, you know, the land of the free, the egalitarian society and all that sort of thing. And I went to the uh, the papers and the debates by the people who actually wrote the American Constitution. Uh, you know, people like James Madison, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, James Madison made it very clear 
that the Constitution was about preventing democracy. The Constitution was very much about uh, protecting the interests of the wealthy. Uh, and basically, uh, he, he was the one who devised the political system around the college to elect the president. And the college was, while it is seen to be protecting smaller states, was really about preventing direct election. So what he wanted was what he called representative democracy. So you would leave the masses basically having an effective say in the election of state legislatures, which in the grand scheme of things don't have huge power. And in terms of the Senate, which does have huge power and the president, then you construct an electoral system which freezes out the masses. And that was his solution. Well, uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson yes. uh, did, did, didn't think that went far enough. Thomas Jefferson basically wanted to recreate the House of Lords. And he wanted, this, he wanted the Senate to have life peerage. Now, as you say, what's interesting about Thomas Jefferson is that you can trace a direct line from Jefferson to the Democrat Party, which makes it even more interesting. Yes. But you then look at a fellow like Bill Kristol, who gave an interview to the Washington Post of all, of all papers, in which he and uh, Bill Kristol is described by the person who interviewed him for the Washington Post basically as an icon of the neocons and the conservatives and all the rest of it. And the and Bill Kristol in this interview said that uh, the Republican Party has always been the party of business and therefore the wealthy, but he never really appreciated how small the oligarchy who ran it really is or really was. Now, it's interesting that Bill Kristol's got to the point where he says that even if Donald Trump were not the nominee for the Republican Party in the presidential election next year, he still would not vote Republican. The wealthy have lost control of the party. Well, uh... um, so... It's quite interesting. Yes. Now, can I come to one feature at home here in Australia? And that is the voice referendum. And I think it had, yes. in many ways, a, a, a good effect because it exposed those who are the elites. It exposed those who hold the views that you're referring to, it exposed those whom Gramsci would be completely at home with. And Gramsci really is... He, he worked out a way to introduce, as I understand it, communism in the absence of a revolution because the proletariat were not going to revolt against the ruling classes and uh, Marx was going to be shown to be completely wrong if, uh, if we weren't to proceed to this uh, more communist society. Now, one of the things which emerged in this referendum was a concept you referred to in your paper as stakeholder capitalism, because yes. we saw how the boards of the big corporations yes. in Australia uh, seem to be inhabited by Bolsheviks who really want to be billionaires. They have, they have a Bolshevik mind 
yet they want to be personally billionaires. We saw that with what was happening, for example, in, in Qantas. They want extraordinary amounts of money to be paid to the directors of the board, but they ignore the interests of the shareholders and they claim to be following the interests of the stakeholders, whom they seem to determine who those stakeholders are. Did you see that as an advantage in exposing who are the elites in Australia? I, 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 I think it's really a consequence. I mean, the fourth part of the equation uh, is, as you say, stakeholder capitalism and the uh, what what what, um, what is worthwhile remembering is uh, there's a an American uh, I think he was a sociologist or a demographer uh, Samuel Huntington uh, Samuel Huntington uh, many years ago uh, well back in the nineties uh, basically became uh, quite quite famous uh, because. He really focused on civilizations, and the uh, and he completely disagreed with the notion that with the end of communism, that uh, the ideological battles and the cultural battles were all over. Uh, but in two thousand and four, uh, he wrote an essay in which he pointed out that the that the financial elites these days are all globalists. It, it was. It was quite. I mean, it got. I don't think the significance of what of of his proposition was fully appreciated at the time. But I mean, this was two thousand and four. And the um, what is interesting, and in fact, the I think the sub the, he gave the title of his essay Davos Man. And uh, Davos, man, of course, is quite critical to this because da Davos takes us to the World Economic Forum. The um, there was a ruckus uh, earlier this year with an American beer uh, called Bud Light, uh, and what happened there was Bud Light was the the the, the biggest selling beer in the United States. And the um, and the owners of Bud Light got the idea of having as their as their promoter uh, a transgender person who became a woman, and the uh, it came up to the three hundred sixty fifth day of uh, a change, and so they put out this special beer as as a marketing tool, not to sell, which she then put up on Instagram. And as a consequence of that, that beer went from number one on the sales to number 14. <laughs> and the share price fell 20%. And the uh, the share price hasn't recovered and Bud Light beer hasn't recovered. And I think most people think it, it probably never again will, be, will go back to number one. Uh, as an aside, uh, Bud Light... Uh, is a beer which which is pitched at what we will call truck drivers. So, so fundamentally, this is a profound cultural statement. Yes. Um, but the in the fallout of that, a former executive of the the brewer uh, said that he'd worked for this brewer for thirteen years, and in the end, uh, he had walked away and he'd set up his own financial advisories 
firm or whatever. And he walked away because of uh, what of woke capitalism. And he said, follow the money. And by follow the money, he meant follow the money to three big index fund investors, uh, BlackRock, Vanguard, and First State. Those three in combination have uh, managed $20 trillion US dollars. Uh, those three between them are the largest shareholders in 90% of companies listed in the top 200 on the US Stock Exchange. Uh, the fellow who set up BlackRock is a fellow called Larry Finks. Uh, in 2017, uh, he said at a public forum, Behaviour has to change, change has to be forced, and BlackRock will force the change. Uh, the mechanism for forcing the change is this concept called uh, environment social governance. And the first uh, sort of uh, the, the first tool that, uh, for, for that was actually prepared by the leading four accounting companies, that they searched Young, Price Waterhouse, and, and the other, and the other KPMG, and the other one. Now this all happened in around about 2020, and the architect behind all of it is a fellow called Klaus Schwab, who has set up a one-man business, which he calls the World Economic Forum, and Klaus Schwab has held. The, uh, has been a supporter of what is called stakeholder capitalism for 50 years. And uh, if, I, and could, if I could interrupt you there, stakeholder yes. capitalism means that the board determines who the stakeholders are. And in fact, it's a cover for applying whatever policies that the board wishes to apply, is it not? No, it's, it's not even the boards, it's management. Mm. It's not even the boards. Uh, Klaus Schwab, uh, Klaus Schwab has held this view for 50 years. He posits um, stakeholder capitalism as being a compromise between state capitalism on the one hand and Milton Friedman on the other. Uh, and he's waited 50 years to see off Milton Friedman. And he, like all megalomaniacs, he actually says what he's going to do. And he's, he said that stakeholder capitalism, that, that the World Economic Forum was the vehicle he created to prosecute stakeholder capitalism, and that basically stakeholder capitalism is the mechanism by which managers become trustees for the world. This is all in print. Uh, and so that's and so that's what we that's what we are now dealing with. And his definition of stakeholder, as you say, Milton Friedman's definition of stakeholder essentially was uh, shareholder, uh, employee, customer. Yes. Uh, Klaus Schwab. Well, Klaus Schwab didn't invent stakeholder capitalism, but stakeholder capitalism extends that to include uh, basically uh, society at large. And society at large, of course, is represented by activists. So if you look at the World Economic Forum as an example, it's not any business that turns up to the World Economic Forum. It's all the globalist NGOs as well. And again, if I could interrupt you, uh, in the referendum here in Australia, 
every exercise in stakeholder capitalism concerning the referendum <coughs> came to one conclusion. Not one board, yes. not one board at all, spent any money on the no case. They were all attracted right. by the yes case. You, you say something uh, very interesting. I found it very interesting. You say that uh, gay marriage and transgenderism are not new cultural phenomena. What did you mean by that? I, I, I'm, I'm, back, I'm back to Rousseau. If you take... The, the, question, the question is this. Um, are things like transgender uh, uh, new, uh, new values or ideas, or are they simply a manifestation of uh, existing concepts. And if you say they are manifestations of existing concepts, then the question is, do they have something in common? And fundamentally, what they all have in common uh, is this notion of what I would call self-identity. That's why, so, so, for, so for example, um, the uh, let's take Simone de Beauvoir. Uh, Basically, uh, she wasn't a, she wasn't born a woman at all. Uh, people decided that for her, and basically, she ought to be able to decide whether she, whether she wants to be a woman or not. That's what she said. Now, the um, you, Freud says uh, our identity comes through sex. Now, if you take these fundamental propositions, they they provide the foundation. For, for what we are now dealing with. Uh, we, we are now dealing with the notion that, that human beings are psychological. Uh, uh, the identity of human beings is determined by psychology. And therefore, basically, we are what we feel. And, the, and our feelings have to be validated by society and validation is not acquiescence or tolerance of our views, but it must be positive affirmation. So that's why when you get to gay marriage in the USA, um, a gay couple don't go to any baker to bake the cake. They deliberately go to a Christian baker. I mean, they could have gone to 999 bakers. They deliberately go to a Christian baker because every baker has to validate their views, and that's where we are. Um, and so, and so, you see that now. That that idea is now running through the whole, gen, the whole transgender issue, as an example. Uh, it's not merely a case of people having to say, "Well, to each his own." Uh, we we all have to sign up and say, uh, "We positively think this is a good thing." Well, and there's a commonality. So what? What? So, so what you then get is this collection of people who each derive their identity through something different. So let, let's take the voice. So there are people who derive their identity through saying that they're Aboriginal. The um, so we all have to sign up to that. It's not just acquiesce, we all have to sign up to it. 
and the evidence of that is that, it, as you know, in the lead-up to this referendum, the promoters of the referendum rejected the idea of passing an act of parliament and insisted on a referendum. So you say, why would you forego an act of parliament, which is bound to get through, because you know, the, the parliament is, is, is the representative of the elites? So why, why would you forego the certainty for the referendum? This is, uh, this is, you're, 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 you're absolutely you right. Unfortunately, uh, Rick, we're running out of time. Could you, yes. th this is a wonderful essay and it really explains so much of what is happening in society. To most of us, it just seems disjointed. It seems as though the, the world is going mad to the people with common sense, but you explain it superbly in a, an historical way and in a very justifiable way. Your, your essay is published by Connor Court, is it not? What is the, it's, it's in it's a series. In, it's, it's in their latest quarterly, Connor Court 16. Connor Court Quarterly 16. Uh, it's, called, it's called Connor Court Quarterly 16. Yes, and we'll put up, or we'll be announcing from time to time how to go into Connor Court and order this, because it is a fascinating piece of work. I must congratulate you once again on being so wonderful in cutting through as you did. And you, you demonstrated both in uh, 1999 and again, when you advised against Australia entering into the free trade agreement with the Chinese Communists, you once again demonstrated a wisdom which seems to be lacking from uh, most of our politicians. So I must congratulate you on that and thank you for the time you've set aside today. I'm sorry it's uh, not been longer. We had some problems in the transmission earlier. Those will, those will be corrected. But uh, I think uh, I would very much like to get you back again later on so that we, you could talk about how this is being received in the Australian community. I should imagine the elites will ignore your work, will they not? Oh, oh yes, certainly. Good. Well, once again, <laughs> certainly. Rick Brown, thank you very much. This has been a wonderful <laughs> piece of work. We will be yes. adding it uh, at the end. And uh, this is... Uh, uh, ADH TV. I'm David Flint. The program has saved the nation and you've been listening to Rick Brown on this important new essay from Rousseau to the World Economic Forum, which explains so much of what is happening to society. Save the Nation is produced by Charlie Noble and uh, I'm David Flint and until next time and thank you.